This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Federal tax reports are due today. In about 15 minutes, I'll talk with historian and author David Weinfeld. He's delivering a talk on the University of Arkansas campus this week titled Between Confederate Memory and Jewish Identity, Southern Jews and the Lost Cause. He'll offer a preview of that talk, and he'll also discuss his recent book, An American Friendship, Horace Callan, Elaine Locke, and the Development of Cultural Pluralism. First, the Arkansas State Legislature voted to extend a 4% privilege tax on medical marijuana sales at the end of its session earlier this month. But, as Ozarks at Largest Dean and Caruth reports, where that growing pot of money will go is expanding, too. Last week, the Arkansas legislature approved $100 million in reserve funding to go toward the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences to help expand their Cancer Research Center. Michael Beer is the director of the UAMS Winthrop Rockefeller Cancer Institute. Um, it, it, it sends the message to the legislature, it sends the message to everybody that we've got a timeline to get it done rather than just sort of year after year taking medical marijuana tax money and leaving it open-ended, although that would have been flexible for me, I think there's really a need to make sure people know that that's not going to be the case. It's going to be finished and we're going to apply. Beerer says UAMS is working toward applying for a designation from the National Cancer Institute. Since 2019, funding for the school's cancer research was garnered through a 4% excise tax on medical marijuana. But now that privilege tax, which was going to sunset in July, has been extended for another two years, this time, though, to go toward food insecurity and medical residency programs. Here's Senator Jonathan Dismang of Searcy, who sponsored both of the bills to extend the tax and move reserve funds to UAMS. Well, we have a considerable surplus right now, and we were committed to the National Cancer Institute designation. And you saw that when we originally dedicated the medical marijuana money you know, to that project. And because we had the money sitting there, we we're able to fully fund that project, and that's about $100 million to complete. Uh, that freed up those revenues, uh, you know, that were generated from medical marijuana. Um, and so, you know, in kind of looking at some other needs out there, food insecurity uh, became a priority, I think, for a number of members. You saw that reflected in the bill uh, that was focused on the school lunch program and then also wanting to make sure that we had a competitive GME program uh, here in the state or general medical education program. Uh, here in the state. And so it was going to allow those two things to be funded for sure, and then maybe some other projects um, that, that arise. Scott Harden is a spokesperson for the Department of Finance and Administration, which also oversees the state's Medical Marijuana Commission. He says tax collection for medical marijuana so far for 2023 is around $8 million. So last year if, um, was the biggest year that we've had yet since the industry launched last year. Uh, we had about $276 million spent at dispensaries purchasing medical marijuana. We think this year it'll probably uh, exceed $280 million, so we'll have another record year this year. He says overall, Arkansans spent around $25 million on medical marijuana in March, up from $22 million in February and $23 million in January. And he says these sales have exceeded the state's expectations when they first implemented the program back in 2019. At that point, we thought that when the market was mature, we'd have about 50,000 people in the state with a patient card. Today, we have almost 100,000. So obviously, that was a bit off the mark. And what we're seeing now is, uh, and from tax collection, I think we underestimated by probably about uh, a fourth. So across the board, the industry has exceeded our expectations, both the number of patients, tax revenue. And, uh, you know, I, I think there was some idea that maybe this is going to slow down and we that it's going to fall off, but we're just not seeing it. He says that 4% tax on wholesale and retail sales of medicinal cannabis generate around $16 million in annual revenue. And this comes on top of a 6.5% sales tax. That was just simply in the amendment when, when this was proposed and approved in 2016. So Anytime a patient walks into a dispensary, they're going to pay uh, two state-level taxes. The first is just the regular 6.5% state sales tax that they're really going to be paying on the majority of retail items that they purchase anywhere across the state. They're also going to be paying a 4% privilege tax that was instituted by the state legislature. 
And so overall, they're going to be paying 10.5% in state taxes. Um, and then from there, both the 6.5% and the 4% would go into a fund, and then the state would cover its expenses, whatever it costs the state to, to really administer the medical marijuana program. And then from there, everything else went to UAMS. Um, that will continue under this legislation. The only change is after the state covers its expenses, everything will go to one, um, these expanded medical residencies across the state, and then two, food insecurity with students. But Hardin says that high tax has often rubbed a lot of medical marijuana patients the wrong way. In Arkansas, most other prescription drugs are not taxed. And last year, a citizen-initiated ballot measure that would have legalized recreational marijuana failed by a margin of just 23 percent. And that measure would have also abolished the 4 percent tax, which Dr. Beerer says put some things into perspective for UAMS. We, we had a wake-up call when the recreational marijuana ballot initiative came through because that ballot initiative removed the tax on medical marijuana. So our entire funding stream would have disappeared. And he says the promise of funding from this tax that went to pursue NCI designation was one of the motivating factors for his move to Arkansas. One of the reasons I came when I got recruited was other than a major change in leadership at UMS with the arrival of Chancellor Patterson. He was also able to negotiate a minimum of $10 million per year through the marijuana tax uh, that would come into a trust fund directly to the uh, Cancer Institute, which I can see and I can uh, use that uh, because the process of designation for everybody, but in particular for UAMS, uh, is a relatively expensive He says Oklahoma, one of the last states to get an NCI designation, spent around $400 million over 12 years. And so far, UAMS has put around $70 million toward the process. And Beer says these funds will go most significantly to hiring more people, buying new equipment, and developing two key areas, clinical trials and community outreach. Every Kansas center has to have a little bit of a niche now to get designated. You need to tell them what you're bringing to the table that they don't necessarily have in the portfolio of all the cancer centers across the United States. We think our niche is rural cancer care and underserved populations. Um, And that's going to require two two big issues. One is that we need to renovate and expand our regional programs, one in Helena and one in Jonesboro. We want to literally bricks and mortar and expand those to serve cancer patients. We might even put clinical trials in there. Uh, And the third site probably is going to be El Dorado because it's the gateway to the south. If you look at uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas, there isn't a single NCI-designated cancer center in those three states. NCI designation is the highest status for cancer centers in the U.S., with 71 total across the country. And Beer says that designation could bring both better cancer care and treatment to the state, as well as economic benefits. We think it will bring in somewhere between 50 to $100 million within the state. And what I mean by that is that if we do this right, biotech companies and pharma will come here to say, look, at, I want to open our, my trial here at UMS. And if you do it right, you can even get companies interested enough to open up offices here. We, so, so I think there's an economic reason. And if you layer on top of that, they're bringing in people. We think the ultimate result could be up to 1,500 new jobs. So I think there's an economic impact. There's an impact on, obviously, cancer care. Uh, and then ultimately, we hope that uh, we'll see a drop substantial drop in cancer incidence and mortality. He says the school hopes to apply for designation in at least two years. And for that medical marijuana tax revenue, Dismang says the cost of expanding medical education programs is budgeted around $10 million, while the student lunch program could cost up to $6 million. Uh, we were helping kids pay for the lunch at school. Currently on the reduced lunch program, there's a portion of that that is not you know, fully covered by the feds, and so this would allow Uh, The state, if the feds do not come along to help, uh, fully make those payments for the kids' lunches. And then the second part of that would be, um, you know, it's going to be based on application for the graduate medical um, students. Um, And so we don't have that fully developed at this point, but 
but again, we should have the, the means then available to make that a viable project here. And while the 4% privilege tax is up for renewal again in 2025, Dismang says as long as the medical marijuana program is booming, he suspects the tax will hold. Now, I mean, until the legislative body decides they would not like to renew, or uh, the second piece to that would be is if there you know, been a recent push, and I think will continue to be a recent push, to push for recreational use, and, and that would change then the, that, that revenue stream. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. And Daniel Carruth produces his news stories inside the Karen Taha News Studio. Plenty to do in the next few hours. First, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, Matthew. Taxes done? I did my taxes like a month ago. Well, aren't you something? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I tend to get them done a little bit early because I like to have that money sooner than later. <laughs> I sat on the couch early this morning as Laura Kellums finished up the returns. Because, <laughs> you know... We can spend that money in May just as well as we can in March. (laughs) But if your taxes are done and you are ready to do something else, here are a few suggestions. Uh, Starting tomorrow, the Northeastern State University Playhouse in Tahlequah will present Arsenic and Old Lace. This will run through the 22nd. Have you ever seen a production of Arsenic and Old Lace? I have not. It's fun. Uh, Savannah Conley, who I really like, is at George's uh, Thursday night. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's the 20th. Also Thursday night, a solo guitar performance at Fayetteville Public Library, Richard Smith, as part of the Mountain Street Stage uh, series. And there will be a Spring Fling bike rally in Eureka Springs. It begins Thursday. And also more music Thursday night on the campus of John Brown University in Solomon Springs, the JBU Choir. What does it look like to be an activist whose work spans over multiple generations? We hear from Dr. Allison Parker on the latest episode of Undisciplined, about Mary Church Terrell. Mary Church Terrell is an excellent example of a person who is persistent in her activism, but also willing to try multiple kinds of activism, usually all in the same year, week, day. So she didn't change as much as people say she did. I don't think she became radical in her old age. I think she was radical at the beginning. Find the podcast for free on KUAF.com or search for Undisciplined in your podcast app. Ahead on today's show, how a friendship between a man who had become a large part of the Harlem Renaissance and a German-born American philosopher would lead to a larger conversation about cultural identity. The legacy I see of their friendship is in some ways uh, a kind of uh, addition to a conversation um, to a related topic in terms of cultural pluralism, which is the topic of uh, black Jewish relations uh, in the United States, which a lot of people have written about. And uh, they've spoken of an alliance or the black Jewish alliance sort of symbolized by Abraham Joshua Heschel, the rabbi marching with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. David Weinfeld will be on the University of Arkansas campus this week. And we talked to him about his book, An American Friendship, Elaine Locke, Horace Callan, and the development of cultural pluralism. That conversation ahead on today's show. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, concludes its season Saturday, April 29th at Walton Arts Center with Evoking Folklore, performing works by Jared Tate, Manuel de Fala, and Aaron Copeland, each a storytelling of folklore, from traditional Spanish stories to Chickasaw Nation tales and classic Americana. Tickets at sonamusic.org. Founded in 2016, Fayetteville Virtual Academy serves Northwest Arkansas students in kindergarten through 12th grade and allows families to partner with qualified Fayetteville Public Schools teachers to provide students with a personalized learning experience and reimagine education. The school choice deadline is May 1st. Applications are now being accepted. More at fva.fayar.net. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. The United States Department of Agriculture is giving Arkansas $20 million in loans and grants for rural development projects, and $7.4 million will go toward a water system project in north-central Crawford County. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports that for decades, people have hauled water from other places, relied on private water wells, and other organizations to share their water resources. There are about 349 residents in north-central Crawford County who do not have access to potable water, according to USDA. 
Susan Wilson, mayor of Mountainburg, says the residents live outside city limits and the process of getting funding for a water system started years ago. She says the area is experiencing increased water demand because of population growth. Absolutely. On our current Rackley Mountain system, the first two years that I was the mayor, we put in two taps, which means two new customers. In the last three years, we've put in 46. Wilson says community members urged her to get this project started. She heard from people who could not retire until they have drinking water because they need to pay for a truck's upkeep to haul water. She says the project includes adding about 70 miles of pipe from Mountainburg's water distribution system to the residents. For Ozarks at Large in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 1, I'm Anna Pope. Food manufacturing companies should ensure that they do not hire children to do dangerous jobs at plants, says Tom Vilsack, United States Department of Agriculture Secretary, in a letter to U.S. meat and poultry processors. This comes after a federal investigation found Packer Sanitation Services Incorporated had at least 102 children illegally employed in hazardous jobs. Children worked overnight shifts in 13 meat processing plants, and two of those facilities were in Arkansas. The company was fined $1.5 million. Secretary Vilsack's letter is part of an effort the U.S. Department of Labor is leading to crack down on the use of child labor. The Labor Department has seen a nearly 70 percent rise in companies illegally employing children, according to the letter. The history of voting and America's democracy are included in the latest exhibit on display at the Arkansas State Capitol. The traveling exhibit is visiting Little Rock in its first stop of its tour around Arkansas while on loan from the Smithsonian Institution. Ann Clements, Education Director for the Arkansas Humanities Council, says historical campaign memorabilia is a centerpiece of the exhibits. And we thought it was very important to bring this exhibit here and offer it as an opportunity for Arkansans to learn how the humanities connect with democracy and how they then are a part of that. The exhibit documents history from the American Revolution through the Civil War, the civil rights movement, and recent election and voter rights struggles. Clements says it is a partnership between the Arkansas Secretary of State's office and the Smithsonian's Museum on Main Street program. We pay for transportation, uh, programming, some programming that deals with the exhibit. Uh, We are offering grants for teachers to bring their students on field trips to come see the exhibit and we're also offering professional development for teachers. The exhibit is on display until May 23rd in the fourth floor gallery of the Arkansas State Capitol Building in Little Rock. The exhibit is making several stops in Arkansas this year including at John Brown University in Salem Springs this fall. Standout Razorback softball pitcher Shanice Delsey was the ninth overall selection in last night's women's professional fast pitch draft. The redshirt senior was picked by the Oklahoma City Spark. She can sign a professional contract after the collegiate season ends. And that collegiate season continues today as the Razorback softball team faces Texas A&M Commerce at Bogle Park. The baseball Razorbacks finish a six-game homestand tonight with a game against Central Arkansas. And the Northwest Arkansas Naturals are back in Arvest Ballpark in Springdale tonight, hosting Amarillo for the first of a six-game series. Later this week, David Weinfeld, a historian and author, will speak on the University of Arkansas campus as a guest of Departments of Jewish Studies, Gender Studies, and Southern Studies. He'll present the talk Between Confederate Memory and Jewish Identity, Southern Jews and the Lost Cause. Earlier this month, I reached him to talk about that presentation and also to talk to him about his book, An American Friendship, Elaine Locke, Horace Callan, and the Development of Cultural Pluralism. Locke, an African-American, and Callan, a German-born Jewish philosopher, were both outsiders in early 20th century academia. 
David Weinfeld, an assistant professor of world religions at Rowan University, says their friendship was unique. What, what's interesting about them and, and what I, the, the term I use uh, in the book is I refer to them as enthusiastic outsiders. <laughs> so they, they were uh, certainly outsiders to the mainstream, as you said, um, Horace Callan uh, as a, uh, a Jewish immigrant, and especially Ally Locke as an African American, uh, they were outsiders to sort of you know the white Anglo Protestant elite, um, and yet at the same time they very much wanted to be, if not part of that elite, then at least in conversation with that elite, uh, and they certainly admired things about uh, that elite's tradition, the tradition that we could you know, broadly call Western civilization. Uh, they were both uh, utterly enamored of that. So uh, they appreciated being outsiders, I think, uh, because of the perspective it gave them, um, a, a kind of unique perspective, but they also uh, were very much uh, ensconced in, uh, in that world, both at Harvard and then at Oxford. As their conversations and their friendship grow, they begin to come to this discussion about cultural pluralism, which was different than assimilation, which a lot of the white Anglo elite wanted. Can you give us just sort of a difference between the cultural pluralism and the sort of melting pot uh, idea? Sure. So... um First, before in going into either of those two, I should say um, their ideology also stood in opposition to a kind of uh, racist nativism that was, you know, opposing immigration uh, from different parts of the world, and of course um, supportive of discrimination against African Americans. So um, that was a common foe that the cultural pluralists, we, we can call the cultural pluralists, they didn't yet call themselves that, um, they had a common foe with the more assimilationist melting pot advocates um, who, who um, actually thought that immigration could be a positive force um, so long as immigrants um, you know, embraced uh, quote-unquote American society, uh, by which they really meant white Anglo-Saxon society, right? White Anglo-Saxon Protestant society. Mm -hmm. So um, the cultural pluralists um, took a different stance. They were the ones who said, not only do we oppose the racism and the nativism, but we also don't think that uh, immigrants or African-Americans should have to abandon their own cultural heritage. They should actually be able to keep their cultural heritage, develop their cultural heritage, have it interact with the different cultures that existed in America, and that that interaction, right, the essence of pluralism, would actually benefit the individual groups and American society as a whole. In 2023, this sounds like Right. Yes. Sure. But in the early 20th century, was this sort of among mainstream a radical idea that let immigrants and let African-Americans have their own aspects of culture while also, you know, being part of the bigger culture? Yes, it, it absolutely was. Um, there were definitely um, people who saw themselves as relatively progressive who fell into the assimilationist camp. Um, and so uh, this was a different perspective, right? This was even uh, in some ways more radical than that by saying, uh, yes, these cultures should be valued, right? This, part of the reason this was radical is because um, of, you know, the prejudicial and bigoted view that culture, there was kind of a cultural hierarchy, that mm. some cultures are better than others. So this was a more egalitarian point of view to say, actually, all of these cultures have something to contribute. In the African-American case, in fact, there is a view that um, they don't really have any culture at all to contribute. And that's one of the things that Alain Locke was really 
uh, fighting against in his early thought, and, and especially uh, later on in the 20s through the uh, Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, he's a major figure in that. And, of course, he, he's a professor at Howard, I think, into the early 1950s. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, the, the, the conversations and friendships start at Harvard, then go to Oxford. What records do we have of their interactions? Uh, letters, but do we know what they actually might have, you know, face-to-face talked about? So it's, uh, it's hard to know. Of course, uh, we don't. Unfortunately, those conversations were not recorded, uh, right? So we have to piece it together. Uh, we certainly do have uh, some correspondence uh, between the two of them uh, early on. We also have correspondence uh, between Alain Locke and his mother, especially, uh, that tell us a lot about his uh, interactions with Horace Callan in that early period, uh, 1907, 1908. Um, and we have a diary that Horace Callan kept while he was at Oxford um, from 1907-1908 uh, uh, that tell us about these interactions. But we really have to piece it together um, because there's, as I said, nothing was recorded. Uh, there's no sort of smoking gun. <laughs> but uh, let me just give you an example of, of what piecing it together uh, looks like. So we know that Horace Callan was very involved uh, in the early Zionist movement. And one of the things he does when he's at Oxford in early 1908 is he encounters uh, a figure named Achad Ha'am, which is actually the pen name for uh, Asher Ginsburg. It means one of the nation. This is a major, major Zionist thinker um, that Horace Callan encounters. He's actually not too impressed with him when he does encounter him. But uh, in any event, in his diary, where we learn about this encounter, we learn that the next day he's interacting with Elaine Locke and that he's going having conversations with Elaine Locke. So, you know, it's not, as I said, a smoking gun, but we can only imagine that Horace Callan is, is, you know, deeply engaged in this. Uh, world of the of early Zionist thought, beginning of the 20th century, and then, it, in all likelihood, he's having conversations with his friend Alain Locke, who is similarly engaged in uh, in a world of nascent black and other uh, uh, non-white nationalisms among cosmopolitan figures at Oxford. Right, so that's the kind of detective work that I try to do. <laughs> In, 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 in um, you know, trying to imagine what they spoke. We know that they spoke. We don't have their, the record of that conversation. So uh, it's that sort of thing um, that is really exciting, but also challenging uh, as, as a historian. I was going to say, I mean, you know, it's, it's one thing to be a playwright and be able to imagine, but you're not. You're a historian. So you have to hold those reins. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what we can do, right? We can speculate based on what we know, based on the written record, right? When when we have to try to fill those gaps. I'm a believer that a historian is allowed to speculate, in fact, should uh, speculate. But as you just said, you have to hold the reins. You have to do so responsibly. Do we know if early or maybe even later in their friendship, if Callan might have um, altered... Locke's thoughts or opinions about Jewish people or vice versa? I mean, did they did they begin to alter their own personal views about that or anything else as they became deeper into their friendship? Well, this is this is one of the more interesting uh, aspects of the story, I think, uh, is that it's quite clear from the early written record that when they were first becoming friends, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, that Horace Callan held racist views towards African Americans and uh, Alain Locke held anti-Semitic uh, views towards the Jews. It's, it's made very clear in their uh, personal writings. And yet they were still able to become friends. Right? And uh, they, they, they clearly bonded, they clearly had some kind of connection that was not just an intellectual connection in terms of 
philosophy, right? That uh, a mutual interest of theirs, but also I think in this engagement with culture, with nationalism, with pluralism, and and so over time, what we see is that their friendship they drift they drift over time first after this sort of initial period uh, where they're uh, spending a lot of time together. Um, after about 1915, the correspondence dries up. 1916, and they don't really reconnect until the 30s. Hmm. But in the final two decades of Alain Locke's life, um, as they reconnect and become closer and closer again, right, we definitely see a change, like the one uh, I think you were anticipating. Right, We definitely see that Alain Locke starts to abandon uh, those kinds of sentiments. You don't see them appearing in any of his writings anymore about Jewish people. And Horace Callan, uh, even more so, I would say, uh, comes around to the notion that African-American culture is actually very important uh, to um, the United States and to broader American culture. And, uh, and it's in the, uh, the years leading up to Alan Locke's death and then even after Alan Locke's death that uh, we start to see that more and more uh, in, in, in Horace Callan's writings, him championing uh, African-American culture. Having this, this friendship and these conversations that, you know, are about cultural pluralism or they're exploring this at the very time that their friendship is kind of an example of it. Yes, uh, that, that too is, is sort of one of the major kind of uh, meta-arguments of the book is that um, for both Callan and Locke, uh, cultural pluralism should actually be understood as friendship. Right? That friendship is the best metaphor. There have been other metaphors before. There had been the melting pot, right? this sort of culinary metaphor. There had been uh, music, that, which is a metaphor that they both actually use. Uh, Horace Callan uses this term, symphony of civilization, which he actually may have borrowed from Locke. Uh, so they've used, you know, different metaphors. But ultimately, I think friendship really is the best metaphor, right? This is something that Callan talks about in his eulogy for Locke, uh, that, that it's uh, cultural pluralism is about meeting people who are different than you and learning from them and having sharing real positive experiences with them. And uh, I think... As you just said, right, the, their example, the, the, the Callan-Locke friendship, is a prime example of cultural pluralism as friendship. Callan, of course, is a founding faculty member of the New School for Social Research. Locke is a major figure in the Harlem Renaissance, as we've discussed, you know, for decades, a uh, uh, professor at Howard and, and influential on mm-hmm. students there. So we both know they mm-hmm. individually have a legacy. Does their friendship have a legacy? I hope so. I hope their friendship does have a legacy, uh, and, and, and I think it can. Uh, I think that um, the legacy I see of their friendship is in some ways uh, a kind of uh, addition to a conversation um, to a related topic in terms of cultural pluralism, which is the topic of uh, black Jewish relations uh, in the United States, which a lot of people have written about. And uh, they've spoken of an alliance, or the Black Jewish Alliance, sort of symbolized by Abraham Joshua Heschel, a rabbi, marching with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in, in 1965 at Selma. And uh, there's a lot to that uh, conversation, and there's a lot to that notion of alliance. But one thing that I, I like to sort of see as my contribution here by highlighting the, the Callan-Locke friendship is I prefer the metaphor or the term friendship to alliance, right? Alliance to me seems very transactional, right? Very tit for tat. I'll help you with this. You help me with that, right? The United States had an alliance with the Soviet Union during World War II, but it wasn't a real friendship. Um, I think friendship is what we should really be looking for, right? Not just I helped you and then you helped me, but how do we learn from each other? How do we learn from each other's experiences, from each other's art and literature and religions? And uh, it's that kind of thing 
that um, I'm hoping might be part of this legacy, right? That, that friendship uh, is, it has, has value beyond just um, the, the value to the individuals, but as a concept, right, it creates an atmosphere that is uh, more conducive to getting along than a simple alliance. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what I hope. And I would say the other legacy of that, too, is that, you know, for Callan and Locke, I should, I should say that they were both very much elitists, very highbrow, very much into the world of ideas. And so for them, um, the university was really a space where these friendships can be cultivated. And I think we don't have to be necessarily as elitist to see the university as being uh, the kind of place where these sorts of friendships uh, can be cultivated, right? Where people, not just in class, but in the hallways, in the dorm rooms, uh, in the campus quad, wherever it might be, that, uh, that, that, that different students can, can learn from each other and, and, and can sort of live out cultural pluralism in that very positive way um, that I think is useful uh, in an America that obviously can feel very divided at times. I've asked you a lot about American Friendship, the book uh, published by Cornell Press. I I should. uh, I mean, the Jewish Studies and Gender Studies programs at the University of Arkansas would certainly want me to let people know that when you're here on April 20th, your talk is titled Between Confederate Memory and Jewish Identity, Southern Jews and the Lost Cause. Can you give us, without giving too much away, just a preview of of what that will entail? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So... Just very quickly, the lost cause for people who don't know is this idea um, that um, it was a bad thing that the South of the Confederacy uh, lost the Civil War, um, that the Confederacy was a noble experiment, that, um, that slavery was both not that bad, and in fact, some argued even beneficial to the enslaved African-Americans, um, and also that slavery was not the cause of the Civil War. The Civil War was about states' rights, according to this lost cause view, and that the soldiers who fought for the Confederacy uh, should be regarded as heroes, and especially the noble leadership as they were represented, people like uh, Robert E. Lee. So the lost cause as an idea was very, very powerful in the decades after the Civil War, all the way up through the 1960s uh, and even beyond. We still see it today uh, in the American South uh, among uh, some white Southerners and even in rural areas of, uh, of, of the North and other parts of the country. Uh, you see Confederate flags, for example. So... Um, that's the lost cause. What's interesting about the lost cause is that it's often been inflected with a kind of uh, Protestant Christianity to it. This idea of the South shall rise again uh, has these very Christian overtones. Um, the way that um, the Confederate soldiers and leaders are kind of canonized almost with sainthood. There's lots and lots of Christian Uh, especially Protestant rhetoric surrounding the lost cause. So what I'm going to talk about is about the Jewish people who lived in the South uh, during and just after the Civil War and all the way up uh, to um, the 1960s and even beyond. And uh, I'm going to look at how they engaged with this idea of the lost cause, how they in many ways embraced it, as a form of integration into the broader white elite um, that separated them from the African-American population suffering under Jim Crow discrimination, Um, but also how the Jews had to kind of uh, walk a kind of tightrope because of these Christian overtones that I mentioned. So they had to kind of create their own Jewish version of the lost cause, mm. celebrating Jewish heroes uh, of the civil, quote unquote, heroes of, of the Confederacy and whatnot. So um, that's what my uh, my talk is going to be about um, uh, coming up uh, very soon. 
David Weinfeld is author of the book An American Friendship, Elaine Locke, Horace Callan, and the Development of Cultural Pluralism. His talk, titled Between Confederate Memory and Jewish Identity, Southern Jews and the Lost Cause, is scheduled for Thursday evening at 5.30 in room 306 of Kimple Hall on the University of Arkansas campus. That presentation is free and open to the public. And his talk is sponsored by the Departments of Jewish Studies, Gender Studies, and Southern Studies. What can you expect from the second season of The R Word, a podcast about reparations in Northwest Arkansas? Host Lowell Taylor talks with author and economist Dr. William Darity, author and rapper Propaganda, author Dr. Christina Edmondson, and others about reparations, social, and economic justice. A preview of season two is available right now at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Kyle, one of my favorite ways to start a morning is pull up my phone and uh, thumb through my email to see what I might have missed overnight, what I might have missed from the day before. We have that opportunity with KUAF as well. We can, uh, you can subscribe to the KUAF newsletters. We've got our Ozarks at Large daily newsletter. We've got a weekly newsletter that goes out about music happenings yep. across the region and stuff that we're doing here at KUAF. Um, and there is a very easy way for folks to go and subscribe to that newsletter right now. It's easy and dare I say, inexpensive. Yeah, in fact, it's free. Yes. Arguably the most inexpensive <laughs> opportunity. We're not going to pay you to download yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, to subscribe. Yeah, just go to KUAF.com and you'll find it there. And like Matthew said, it's a great way if you can't hear the show every day. You'll look at, I got one yesterday put together by Brett Ratliff, mm-hmm. our membership director. And I was just, because we sometimes have a forest for the trees when we're putting Absolutely. together Ozarks at Large and Material KUAF. And I went, Holy cow, that was a lot that got covered in the last 24 hours. So you can subscribe for free right now at KUAF.com. In honor of National Volunteers Week, Walton Arts Center would like to thank their volunteers for the hundreds of hours they contribute to supporting the arts in Northwest Arkansas. Walton Arts Center volunteers provide a critical role and serve as the face of the organization for most of their public and education performances. The show could not go on without them. To learn about becoming a Walton Arts Center volunteer, visit waltonartscenter.org volunteer. This week's I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast focuses on the magic of ballet and specifically the nonprofit Ozark Ballet Theater. Host Randy Wilburn asked founder and executive director David Sanders about developing the organization, something that began as a dream for Sanders and his wife, both dancers, before the pandemic. In the big cities where I have always trained all of the people that I've worked for almost every major school that you can think of in the country that's producing professional dancers operates as a nonprofit or has a large nonprofit branch. It's a really good way to get some, you know, extra help. The thing is, is ballets are expensive. Live performing arts in general are expensive, ballets especially. And it, I could, I could come up with a hundred reasons why, but most of it is space. Mm-hmm. You know, for me to practice my art, I need a, a 60 foot diagonal, a flat ground on a sprung floor. And that is not easy to find anywhere anymore. Yeah. So, you know, the, the nonprofit model allows us to not only make pricing accessible for kids, but it opens up venues for funding and, and that we wouldn't otherwise have. So, yeah, it was surprising to, to see that didn't exist. And that was good for you, though. It was good. Yeah. And my wife and I, I mean, her school, the school we were running in, she was running in Orlando. That was also a nonprofit. So we were just astounded. She came up in that school on scholarship and both of us got to be professional dancers. Dance is not accessible. The amount of training you need to do now to kind of like become, to to have a career in dance requires a commitment that is almost impossible for 90% of the population. Yeah. And... It's kind of like gymnastics and a few other sports. Yeah, well, where, most sports and, yeah. and and now a whole lot of other vocations in general. Yeah. You know, it, it can be difficult to find that path. And, and so doing that and also asking, I mean, just getting the training, just the we, we asked our advanced students, if you want to train to be a professional ballerina, we need you four hours a day, six days a week. And in the summer, we need you seven hours a day. 
And, and that's, that's the time commitment you've got to put into it. You've got to find the time for school and all of this other stuff within that. And you've got to also do the, do the stuff at home, you know, yeah. <laughs> stretching yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah. It's a big, big commitment. It's a lot to ask anybody and especially somebody who's struggling financially. I mean, I know I was, my, my family had nothing. I would not have been able to afford a dance class at all as a kid, except it was free. So we offered that. We just came in and tried to fill that gap. And, you know, we, we actually got here and I was looking for another job. We got here July 2020, uh, 2020, July of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for another job and it wasn't easy. Like I told you, I dropped out of college and most of those career paths ideas kind of made me uh, love the money, of course, but <laughs> made yeah. me feel a little miserable. Right. And, and I saw that my wife needed to teach. She needed something to do. And uh, so we just, one day we sat down and we decided to go for it. We wrote up this plan. Start, starting start the, the school. Yeah, yeah. We had no money, but we had found some really cool resources in Northwest Arkansas. We had identified so many needs and we just went for it. We filed our LLC and applied for a nonprofit, which came through, gosh, I think we went on an accelerated time scale on that. And then we got our, we filed for it in, in February and got it in June. Wow. That was, nothing, that was quick. Nothing bouncing That's, back. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been pleased to see some other organizations come up since then. Yeah. And there were a few organizations here. I don't want to, to not, I mean, you got to shout out like Transformation Station and WA. They're a group that specifically exists to give kids scholarship to dance. Sure. But n- none of them are, are, are professional ballet training programs that are nonprofit that that provide scholarships to kids. One, Similar to what you experienced growing up in e- Dallas. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah. One third of our students are on full scholarship. Okay. And I'm sure we're going to get into, because you were talking about Nutcracker and Swan Lake. And, <laughs> well, those um, are some of my favorites, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to learn more about this because it's, I think it's the inner workings of what you guys have done with Ozark Ballet Theater, which people can really appreciate, right? I mean, when you think of ballet, you obviously, you think of the Nutcracker, you think of Swan Lake, you think of some of the the classics. But what people don't see is all the work that goes into actually being able to put a production like that on. Oh, that <laughs> am I right? Work and the money, Randy. <laughs> so, uh, I recently made my report to the board, and to uh, I included some of my better volunteer, like my my more involved parents in that. And sure, that included how much money my wife and I made yeah. last year. We were working sixty hour weeks, and they cannot believe that. That's all that we took. Everything else got poured back into right, the business. Right, right. So when Ozark Ballet Theater started, we, my wife and I were hired over the summer one year. Uh, this was 2021. So we had started. My wife and I got hired to do the summer program at Arkansas Arts Academy. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a very disparate group of kids. Yeah. All backgrounds, all ethnicities, all demographics. None of them had had real consistent training and we we had a great time with those kids. Yeah. I'll tell you what, the a big driving force behind what I do is that I think the works that are created by the kinds of people who can afford to become choreographers in their careers and this is just a, a an observation from the last 10-15 years of of the professional concert dance world. Mm-hmm. Since it's become so gatekept and so difficult to get into, they're all people from exactly the same background and demographic. So I think they're boring. <laughs> just, it's just boring. I'm bored of those kids. I, I want to see the kids who come from different places. I want to see the kids who struggle because they have problems I can help them with and things I can relate to. And so I think that when we take any kind of classical art form and uh, make it more difficult to get involved with, we take so much of the creativity out of it. Yeah, Ballet as a storytelling device is largely dead or dying in America. There's a lot of companies who are doing very experimental things, very abstract things. You're not seeing so many, even though I would say it might be coming back in the next couple of years, you're not seeing so many narrative ballets. And the way I look at that, and this is doesn't have that much to do with education, only it's creating... We got to have a place for these kids to go. If we're yeah. making professional dancers, they need to go out and get some professional work. And my, my wife and I are singularly devoted to making professional dancers. So you're not seeing so many of the narrative ballets. You're seeing a lot of sort of indulgent almost dances about the self that are kind of abstract. And uh, Give us an example of the narrative 
Oh, okay. Uh, Swan Lake. Okay. Yes. Right, so, uh, yes. Yeah. A prince falls in love with a swan for some reason. Anyway, um, we could go. I don't <laughs> right, know what right, the narrative but, is, but, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so just a story-driven ballet. There's many of these pieces that I like. When I talk about these abstract pieces, it always sounds like I'm putting them down. I don't mean to. I think that they're great. I also think that they're contributing to the de- to audience declines in ballet because if you're trying to capture a new audience, I use a metaphor of like a movie. If somebody comes to you, they're 35 years old and they say, hey, I've never seen a film before. You're not going to show them like Eraserhead, you know, like, yeah. like your, <laughs> their first movie, you, you know, sometimes you need you need the entertainment. You need the enjoyable popcorn flick. Right. And maybe Fast Times at Ridgemont yeah, High or something like that. You've got to bring your audience in and establish their trust in you as a storyteller. Yeah. And then maybe you can show them something weird. And then maybe half of them will be like, you know what? That was different, but I liked it. Now you've got an audience who's into it. But what we've had instead, in my opinion, is a lot of abstract, esoteric things that people go and see. And then they're like, what the hell is that? What just happened? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then they either never go to a ballet again, or they tell people that they've seen this and it's ridiculous or indulgent. Obviously, it's not universally the case. Some people love that stuff just automatically. And I think that that's great. So I don't know. We, we're big proponents of storytelling in ballet and hearing new stories. And we, we want students with a unique background to tell those stories. David Sanders is founder and the executive director of Ozark Ballet Theater. The full conversation with Randy Wilburn is included in this week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, and that can be found wherever you find podcasts, also at IamNorthwestArkansas.com and at KUAF.com. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, public library staff are navigating a new law that could criminalize librarians for knowingly lending culturally progressive books to minors. It is, I think, an understatement to say that the burden is going to be enormous to try to get our hands around it and to try to comply with it. That's tomorrow at noon and 7 on 91.3 KUAF. You can also ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent episode. The Momentary in Bentonville presents three-time Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group The Roots, live and in-person outdoors on the Momentary Green, April 29th. The band has been hailed by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest live acts in the world. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Elkins. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Anna Pope, Randy Wilburn, and additional material provided by our friends at KUAR. Our theme is out of the first hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Daryl's most recent CD is titled Still Here. You can find out more about Daryl wherever you find out about music online. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Like we said earlier, you can always keep up with Ozarks at Large by uh, subscribing to the newsletter, KUAF.com slash newsletter. You can also go to OzarksAtLarge.com to find links to all of our stories there. That's right. Stories, complete shows, you can share them as well through social media and email. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. Be well.